Bible with you. So if you have stuff um, and you left it in the rack in front of you, wink, um, all right, and uh, um, page or maybe left it at the store and need Oh, almost forgot. Almost forgot. For those of you with little people, little small humans that hang out with you, the cry room is almost done. Um, we have one more thing that has to be done to it, um, and uh, just to keep kids from going up the spiral staircase and jumping off. Um, but uh, but the the cry room is just about done. Uh, we've had folks use it. They've said that it's fantastic. Uh, it is it is meant for a situation where you just have a you you have you know the the um, the brain can only absorb what the seat can with can withstand, um, and so sometimes your little people get a little jittery, especially toddlers and and really the the little ones. And we love having them in the service. If you feel that your child is being a little disruptive, and go in there, calm them down, and then bring them back out. Um, and uh, and so it's a it's just a great opportunity for us to be able to minister to those with small children. First Peter chapter five, and um, I figured out why I like Peter so much. I had, now, I like, I like everybody in the Bible, um, but, but I figured out why I like Peter so much, and it's this. Now, those of you that have been around, this is week 20 of this, of this series. You've noticed that, that Peter, he's like, um, the illustration I used was a lot of his metaphors and the way that he talks. It's like he's got a bag of marbles, and he just dumps it on the table, and it's just all this different stuff going different directions, and you're sitting there going, what is going on with this guy? Well, this is the great thing about Peter, and I figured out why I like him, because at the end, he brings it all into one big idea and then stops. He just like, he's all over the place. He's talking about buildings. He's talking about Roman soldiers. He's talking about uh, stones. He's talking about temples and priesthoods and shepherding and all this stuff. And he gets to the end and he just is done. And he's finished. And we finally have gotten to that point where he gets to the end. And he gets to his big idea. He gets to his big idea. First Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's his big idea. We're going to talk about his big idea this morning. Would you join me in prayer one more time? Father, as we once again look to the words of Simon Peter, we, we hear what you were doing in his heart and mind and how he looked at the church and looked at his relationship with Christ. And Lord, help us one more time to, to hear from him and to hear from your spirit through him to, uh, to grow, to be transformed, that this written word might reveal to us the living word um, that Jesus might become a little bit more real to us. And we pray it in his precious and holy name. Amen. Remember that Peter is writing from Rome. He's writing from Nero's Rome. And in Nero's Rome, Christians are a persecuted minority. And Nero does all kinds of great things like, like sow Christians into animal skins, soak them in tar, and then light them on fire. Um, he throws people to the lion's um, torturing Christians is his entertainment. Um, he he is uh, he is just a, a terrible, despicable human being. A man who tried to kill his mother not once, not twice, but three times um, before he finally had somebody else do it for him. 
Um, he had a boat sink and she survived. He dropped the ceiling of her bedroom on him and she survived. Um, she tried to poison her and she poisoned the guy that was trying to poison him, uh, poison her. He just, uh, his mother must have been a piece of work to start with too. But, but he, was, he was just completely off the rails. And, and Simon Peter lives in Rome and, and he, he's a part of this. He's the leader of this Christian community that's being uh, oppressed. And it's not just happening in Rome, it's happening all through the Roman Empire because the Christians uh, were Jews. Most of them were Jews in one way, shape, or form or another, the early Christians. And then they left Judaism um, and, they, and then this group of Gentiles, non-Jews, started to become Christians and the churches started to grow and nobody really knows what it is. They're not Romans and they're not, they're not Jews. There's something else and the Jews don't like them and the Romans don't like them and so they are suffering. They're suffering. And the Apostle Peter, he writes this letter to those suffering Christians. And he's dealt with suffering for most of chapters 4 and 5. He's been dealing with the questions of suffering. Why do we suffer? Um, how do we endure this? What is, it, what is going on as we suffer? I mean, he, he deals with um, the passage that we, we read uh, at the beginning of the service. Uh, he talks about that the, if the righteous are barely going to survive, what, what, what is it going to be like um, to not be one of them, to be the ungodly, to be the sinners? He says, suffer according to God's will. A really difficult question. And he wraps everything up into his big idea here in verses 10 and 11. I already read it, but I want to read it one again, once again. After you have suffered a little while. Now to us, what does a little while mean? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Uh, this is really great, and I forgot the word, and I wish I remembered it, because you know, Lynn and Jerry would have loved to, to criticize my pronunciation. But there is actually a Japanese word for a form of torture where they tie your hands and feet behind your back and then suspend you from a rope. They have a word for it. I mean, a specific word for it. I'll, I'll get it to you. It's not a very common word. <laughs> but we, we, we look at something like that. We look at uh, waterboarding. We look at all of the forms of torment that people have invented. And how much can people endure before they crack? You know? Um, and, and how much can we go through? And when we think about going through a hard time, we think about suffering for a little while. What do we really think in our heads? Oh, I can go through this for, I don't know, maybe a day. Or I can go through this for, you know, uh, I, I might be able to get through this for, you know, fill in the blank. However, we think that we're going to get through. But, but God, if you could just make this suffering go away after this time period, because I'm at my absolute limit, I can't take any more. But then, think about the fact that this guy's life was characterized by suffering. Living in Rome, in Nero's Rome, watching friends and, and family and brothers and sisters in the faith being tortured and killed and being hunted down. And he says, you're going to suffer for a little while. He was martyred, by the way. The suffering took him all the way to the end of his life. He, he, he was, but you're going to suffer for a little while. He says, after you have suffered for a little while. And the reality is, in God's economy, a little while is not what we think of as a little while. I mean, the, apostles, the apostle Peter believed, 
um, way back in 31, 32 AD, he believed that Jesus was coming back in just a little while. 2,000 years ago, and we're still waiting for that little while to be over. So a little while in God's economy is a little bit different than a little while in our economy, in our way of thinking. And I can't take it anymore is a little bit different than God's limitations of what, what he knows we can handle. So he says, after you have suffered for a little while. He doesn't say, after you have suffered for a day and a half, two days, three days, a year, a year and a half, 45 minutes. He doesn't give us a specific time. He just says, it's only going to be a little while. But God's little while, not mine. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Now understand what he means by that. So God has called you. So he has summoned you, and you are journeying through this suffering for a little while because that's how you come to his glory. You are, you are going through this because he has called you. Now that's a difficult thought to get your mind around. Will himself. So who is who is the himself here? Right? The God of all grace, verse 10, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. When? After I have gone through the suffering? He doesn't say at the end of your suffering he will do this. Right? He says after you have suffered a little while. And the idea is not that it's the end of the suffering. But in the middle of suffering. As you are, as you are suffering. As you are going through difficulty. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. A little while into there. Not all the way through, just a little while into that. Just part of the way through it. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so, for the Apostle Peter, there are, there's a fourfold purpose in our suffering. Not in the finishing of our suffering, not in the end of our suffering. Because you know when the suffering of a Christian ends? It's, it's when we go to be in the presence of the Lord. Short of that, there's no guarantee that we won't suffer. He says, but as we go through the suffering, as we endure, there are, there's a fourfold purpose. All right? And, it, and it's listed here, so it's not like this is, a, this is a deep Eric idea here. All right? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Now, the word restore, it means um, to mature, to be what you were intended to be. Um, to, to get to the level that you were, that you were at before. To... Um, to achieve a certain accomplishment of something of capacity. Uh, how many of you have ever had an injury that required you not to do something you did all the time? You ever, you ever had one of those things happen? Um, you know, I imagine for some of the ladies it would be some kind of, you know, uh, 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 knitter's elbow. Uh, or, or, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what it was. Uh, for my dad, it was, it was, he had surgery on his, on the, his arms and he couldn't type. Right? And, and like my dad lives in front of a computer. Um, and so he, he was unable to do that. And, and when you have like a surgery like that, that you're not able to do what you do, when they finally give you the okay to do that thing that you love to do, 
right? Suddenly I got a Tom Hanks movie running through my head. Um, but uh, that thing you do. Uh, but uh, you get to the point, you go, okay, now I'm going to go do that thing. And you realize that it's going to take a while before you can get back to the level that you were at before. I remember when I broke my leg when I was a kid um, because I was playing army and I threw a fake grenade at a moving car and it's a long story. Um, anyway, I broke my leg, I broke my leg and I was in a cast um, for, for however long it is that it takes you to have your leg get fixed and stuff. And then they took the cast off me and I thought, sweet, I can go back to doing what I was doing before, you know, and I was mistaken. Um, because what happens to your leg when your leg is in a cast? Uh, atrophy, and you realize that, well, hey, uh, you realize that things don't move quite the way that they do. And so you work to restore that strength, right? You re- work to restore that ability. You work to get back to the level that you can be. And, and, and I'm told that what happens as you get older, suddenly you discover that you never get back to the old level. All right? You, you kind of get back to this is the best it's going to be. Um, you know, and, and so I, I'm not looking forward to that part of aging. I'm really not. Uh, but, but the, the, the process of, of, of getting back to where you, you know you can be. He says, so, so we go through suffering to be restored. We what? Does that make any sense? We go through suffering to be restored? Wouldn't it be better to be restored, you know, you know, yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You know, and you, we don't want to think of that part as the part of our lives where we mature, that valley of the shadow of death from Psalm 23. We want to think about the, you know, you make me lay down by green pastures, you know, you restore. That's where we want to get growing and healed and, and all that stuff. We don't want to go through suffering and try to heal while we're suffering. God needs to give us kind of a break. And then I can be restored. The Apostle Peter says, look, God is working to restore you even in the midst of suffering. To, re, to rebuild and regrow and, and reestablish all that you could be. And God uses suffering to do that. As you go through the suffering, he will restore. He says, secondly, he will confirm. And this word, uh, the confirm, it, mean, it has to do with the wholeness. It has to do with healthiness. Um, it, this is actually the only place the Greek word appears like this as a good thing. Um, in Greek, we put the letter A in front of a word, and that makes it the opposite of something. So we do that in English too, right? Uh, a, a theist is somebody who believes in God. An atheist is somebody who doesn't, right? Well, the word confirmation here, in, in the Greek word is healthy, and the only other times that the word appears in the Bible, it's got an A at the front of it, meaning unhealthy. That's the most common use of it. And the idea is that we will both be restored and we will be confirmed. In other words, we will be made whole. We will be made whole. And I don't really know what Peter's trying to get at here. But I have a feeling that Peter came to an understanding that it is only under pressure that our true character, nature, and health is revealed. Uh, You can can say all you want, you are capable of bench pressing 500 pounds, but until there's 500 pounds hanging over your head, I don't know whether you can, and neither do you. And it's the same thing. Until we go through suffering, we don't understand what it means to be truly healthy, to be truly strong, 
to be truly capable of bearing up under the burdens that God brings to it brings into our lives and that the world brings into our lives. We, we, we don't really know until we're suffering the depth and intensity of our character and emotional well-being and spiritual maturity. We really don't know. One of the interesting things that happen, that's happening in America right now, in American Christianity, is that as we, we emerge into what we're calling the post-Christian world, where Christianity, which used to be so deeply woven into the fabric of America in a very, very loose term, all right, um, it was a very broad brand of Christianity, but it was woven into the fabric of what it meant to be an American. God bless America. You know, that was, that was our, our thinking. As we are emerging out of that world, we're discovering that a lot of what we thought was Christianity was not. Last week we talked about how so much of Christianity, so many Christians are so used to backing up as the culture presses against them that they just continue to back up. They've lost that, 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 that deep ingrained ability to bear up under stress. And so suffering reveals what it truly means to be whole. Suffering reveals what it truly means to be what God intended us to be. And then suffering reveals also, he says, he himself will restore and confirm, strengthen and establish. Now this is one of those moments where Peter kind of pulls all of his different ideas together. And one of the amazing things he does is he manages to grab a word here that fits both with his military metaphors that he's been using through the book and with his building metaphors. All right, he, he's talking about being living stones and, and being built up into a house of God. And he's got all of these ideas that are, that are in previous chapters that, are, that you sit there and go, okay, these have nothing to do with one another. Yet here he grabs two words that are used in both spheres, both in the sphere of construction, building a house, and in the sphere of the military. Um, and he uses these terms, strengthen, all right, um, the strengthen and establish or to lay a foundation the idea of strengthening is uh, this idea of stabilizing what is existing and the idea of establishing is building a foundation underneath it now the reason it's used in the military is because the idea of being stable up front to fight but also being grounded to the ground um, and they used it, the Greeks used it to refer to the phalanx and the, uh, the hoplites. They also used it to refer to fortifications, which is how it came into building. Because the idea of a building was that not only does a building have to have a strong foundation, it also has to have a certain amount of stability. Um, how, many of, how many of you know anything about architect? How many of you know who Frank Lloyd Wright is? All right, a few of you. You ever looked at some of the houses that Frank Lloyd Wright built and gone, how is that still standing? And the reality is most of his build, most of those really weird Lloyd Wright houses that have like all these overhangs and, and weird stuff going on, um, they're actually, they've had to go in and rebuild them. They've had to restructure them and use cabling and, and support struts because it really can't bear the weight. It looks pretty, not very functional. Um, and, and jumping from Frank Lloyd Wright to my ability to build tree houses, because that's a logical analogy, um, when I was a kid, we loved nothing more than to build tree houses, which what does it take to build a tree house? 
right? Basically, wood, nails, and a willingness to hit yourself, right? And a bunch of kids, we would go to the, we would go to the lumber yard with my, my friend Jeff's mom. She had a pickup, and we would pick up scraps of wood, and then we would go into the woods, and we would find trees, and we would nail wood to trees, and that was a good way to build a treehouse, right? And I distinctly remember one time we built a barn, a, a garage to, to uh, park our mini bikes and go-karts and various sort of motorized vehicles that we were not allowed to play with but did anyway. Um, and uh, I was up on the roof, and my friend Jeff said to me, that doesn't look very stable because it had been constructed primarily of two-by-fours and uh, finishing nails. And, uh, and so he was, yeah, so anyway, nailed two small trees, and I was, up on the, I was up on the roof, and he said to me, that doesn't look very stable. I said, oh, this is stable. It'll never move. And I went like this, and you can imagine what happened. Um, the whole thing came crashing down. Because, uh, well, for one thing, it was, you know, not exactly square. Um, it had been measured by 12-year-olds with, with string. Um, but the, there was a lack of stability. There was a lack of foundation. There was a lack of structure. And Peter says that what suffering does for us is, is as we, we mature, as we are, our health is revealed by the stress and strain of the suffering, then, then God can, can stabilize us and he can found us and ground us because we need that stability to survive through the suffering. See, if we don't go through suffering, if we never face difficulty as believers... If we just coast through life, if God's promise was, if you become a believer, you will never have a problem, you will never have a challenge, nobody will ever question anything you say, you will have an absolutely prosperous, wonderful world. If that was God's promise, then the reality is we would be able to skate through life without really ever understanding what it meant to be a Christian. And suffering reveals in us what it really means to be a Christian. And whether we are one or not. And it reveals the weaknesses in our own thinking and our own belief structure so that we then can go back to God and God can build a a firmer foundation for us. We can be rebuilt redesigned, and re... uh, uh, I need another re. Uh, Anyway, throw one in there later. Um, We can be uh, masterfully built under stress to be able to bear up under the weight. The difficulties of life. And our faith becomes real. If we never suffer, do we ever know whether what we say we believe is really what we do believe? We are never challenged. Can we honestly say that what we believe moves what we do? This is one of the the difficulties uh, that we have to face. And it's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. That true faith is revealed when it is challenged and questioned and pushed. 
Unfortunately, it is very, very easy for us to create a very narrow definition of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to isolate ourselves from anything that might challenge that, that preconceived notion, and then we become very happy with ourselves without ever knowing whether what we say we believe is really, really, really ingrained into who we are. And so in a sense, Peter celebrates the fact that the believers suffer. Yet another paradox. But he celebrates it because it tests whether what we believe is real. It is so easy for Christians to to create a world in which anybody who doesn't agree with us is clearly wrong so we don't have to deal with them. Oh, well, so-and-so believes such-and-such. Since I don't, he clearly is a fool. Now, that's an exaggeration, but the reality is this happens all the time. We say to somebody, as Christians, we say, all right, Jesus is our Savior. Savior from what? Savior from sin. I don't believe in sin. What? How do we? How are we able to respond? Wait, what do you mean? Oh, you, you are obviously clearly an ignorant fool, educated at a at a you know Ivy League school. Because no, everyone knows that you should believe this. You know, I mean, there's a very easy ta- answer to that question, by the way. Somebody says, I don't believe that there's anything wrong. There's nobody on earth that actually believes that there's no such thing as sin. You know how I, you can test that? Just find something that they think is reprehensible or morally wrong. Oh, so it wouldn't be a sin for you know, me to you know, marry a 10-year-old goat? Well, that's disgusting. Why? You don't believe in sin. You don't believe in something being wrong. Clearly you do. It's just that your definition of what is wrong is different than my definition of what is wrong, but that doesn't mean you don't believe in it. See, if we intellectually can engage, I mean, how can somebody look around our world and say there's not a thing called sin and not a thing called evil? I mean, how can somebody, you have to close your eyes and pretend like Africa doesn't exist to make that statement. Because Africa is full of people using children to kill other people's children and calling them armies. There's something deeply wrong. And that deeply wrong thing, we have a word for it in Christianity, we call it sin. Something deeply wrong with the world. But the, the, the thing is that if our faith is not challenged, somebody says, I don't believe in God. I say, tell me about the God you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in that one either. Being willing to be challenged Because suffering, difficulty, what it does is it creates in us the depth of faith that is required of a follower of Christ. We no longer have the luxury that we had in previous generations of being shallow, superficial, casual Christians. Guys, i got to tell you, in our lifetime, we are going to reach a point where you are going to have to choose whether your faith is worth dying for or not. We are going to reach that point. Now, every generation in the world has said that thing. And you go, everybody says that. Again, if you're going to, you say that doesn't happen, you have to omit Africa from your map. 
Because right now, in Africa, Christian men and women are being put to that test. And it's only a matter of time before you face that test too. It is coming. We live in a post-Christian world. There is no more room for casual Christianity. Yeah, yeah, virgin birth. Yeah, yeah, virgin birth. I believe that thing. You know, uh, inspiration of the Bible. Yeah, 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 I believe that thing. Uh, I believe the whole Bible. I mean, from generation to revolution. I'm, I'm in. Uh, second opinions, you know, third Maccabees, uh, Esther Williams. I got it all. There is no more room for that. If we're followers of Christ, we, we need to recognize that suffering, what, we're, what we think of as suffering and as American Christians is really not all that much. And it's coming. And you know, Peter makes a note about that, by the way. He says, just remember, in verse 9, that this is the same kind of suffering that is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So what do we do with that suffering? How do I bring Peter's big idea down to Eric's big idea? And I just want to say this to you. What God wants to do in you through suffering may not be what you want God to do to get you out of suffering. But what God is doing is better. What God wants to do in you through suffering may not be what you want God to do to get you out of suffering. See what I'm saying there? We all think, oh, God's got one job and it is to answer my prayers and get me out of difficult situations. It's simply not true. God is doing something in you through suffering. And God is doing something in the church through the suffering of the church that we Americans sometimes are oblivious of this. And I should leave you with this thought, but I'll just... I'll, leave you with this and maybe you can google it and play with it this week all right but here's a reality that has happened in our lifetime since i was born in 1976 yes that makes me young okay um but since i was born the center of global christianity has shifted away from the west from America and Europe and all those things that we think this is what Christianity is. Every single year in the Western world, in Europe, in the United States, in Great Britain, in the Commonwealth of Nations, churches are closing and our world is shrinking. Christianity is growing where people are suffering. American Christianity... It's shrinking, and I think it's a good thing. You know why? Because when everybody who's just casual about their faith has drifted away, those who are left are those who know it and believe it and live it, even under pressure, even in suffering. You can look at it. You can see the majority world Christianity. There's lots of different terms that are used for it. But Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds in Africa and South America and Asia while it's dying in America. 
I have a whole brouhaha about how that's happening. I won't get into it. We better be ready. Because God may use suffering to refine and rebuild and renew us. Why couldn't I come up with those three R's about ten minutes ago? That's what Peter says. Which, by the way, the Christianity that survived the Roman persecutions was the Christianity that ultimately spread throughout the Western world. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, may you be glorified in us. Our road is not easy. Our path is not wide. For so long, we've been able to be comfortable. And the words of somebody like Peter kind of bounced off the surface of Western Christianity and the way that we so dominate culture. And now, something different is happening. The world is changing. Our world is changing. The answer for us is not politicians and governments. The answer for us is you. Being you, even in the midst of difficulty. Maybe you, may you be honored in us. In all we do and say. Amen.